please open to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. This morning we're going to be looking at a famous parable of Jesus called the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now, as you turn to Luke 18, what you're going to find there is a collection of Jesus' parables. We'll probably look at several of these in the coming weeks, but there's a collection of parables particular to Luke 18 that challenge the normal expectations of his listener, of Jesus' listeners. So the purpose of these parables are to challenge what would be the normal expectations of those listening to Jesus, especially their expectations regarding the kingdom of God that Jesus has been preaching about. Now, as Jesus tells these parables, he's revealing to them this simple kind of this simple truth, and that is God's kingdom reflects God's heart. That if your expectation of God's kingdom is wrong, then you have a misunderstanding of actually God's heart in the midst of this. So in God's kingdom, in Luke 18, what you find is that children are invited into, into God's presence. That's not something they would have expected. Jesus tells a parable about the children coming to him and not hindering them, but let them come. Another one of those expectations is that the pleas and cries of widows are heard in Luke 18. That this widow cries out night and day, and you know what? God hears her. That wouldn't have been the normal expectation. She has no power. She has nothing to offer in society. She's a throwaway, and Jesus says, no. No, God hears the voices of those who cry out. And then, in this parable particular to our text today, in God's kingdom... The pleas of mercy of those who are despised are heard. And while those who consider themselves to be righteous in their own eyes, their, their, their prayers are rejected. Now this demonstrates, as we look through this, that God's kingdom brings with it a completely different set of values and principles by which we live. So... As we listen this morning, let's learn how God receives and welcomes those that we might not even expect. So look there in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. It says this. It says, And Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Notice from the outset that they're in the same place. Both of them are in the same place, the temple, praying. And he says, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. May the Lord add a blessing 
to the reading of his word. I want to break this into just three simple sections before I give us some practical principles that we can take home with us. Notice first the problem. Jesus begins this parable by addressing a problem. Look there in verse 9. He says, and he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now from the outset here, you have to pay attention to Luke's careful wording. Notice that he says that Jesus told this parable particularly to some. To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. To some that were treating others with contempt. So Luke is careful from the beginning not to lump all Pharisees in together. Not all Pharisees were self-righteous, but some were. And at the same time, not all tax collectors are repentant, but some are. Zacchaeus would be an example of a repentant tax collector. But there were some, and that's the purpose of this parable, there were some, this is the problem, that trusted in their own righteousness. Jesus already had several confrontations like this. If you were to go to Mark chapter 2, while Jesus is eating and associating with more of the outcast class, it says there in, in Mark 2, it says this, And as Jesus reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. This is in actually the home of Matthew. He says, for there were many who followed him. And listen to verse 16. He says, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, he said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, listen to this, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, Jesus isn't saying here that the scribes and Pharisees were in fact righteous. The problem was that they thought and acted towards others that they were righteous. Jesus' point is that you need to know, hear me church, you need to know that you're sick before you'll go to the doctor and listen to take the medicine. If you know you're sick... It's a much easier trip to the doctor. That's Jesus' point. This is the same attitude, by the way, that led Simon the Pharisee to chide Jesus and to look down with contempt on the woman in Luke 7 who comes to wash Jesus' feet. It says there, it says, Now when the Pharisee, Simon, who had invited Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet... He would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So you see right here, right, this is the problem with trusting in your own righteousness. Notice that Luke connects this in verse 9. He connects trusting in your own righteousness to looking down on others with contempt. That's important, right? If you, you look down on others in contempt who don't meet your personal standard of righteousness. And here's the issue that you need to know from the very beginning. The problem with the Pharisees, some of the Pharisees in this text, and the problem with many, maybe even some of us here today, is that God's standard of righteousness 
is oftentimes completely different than our standard of righteousness. That's the problem. The Pharisees in the parable, his standard of righteousness is different than God's standard of righteousness. You see, we tend, by the way, we can self-justify any action we take from something as simple as being rude. Well, they deserve that. They shouldn't have spoken to me that way. I have every right to be rude to them. We can justify something maybe as little as being rude to someone to something as heinous as murder. We can justify it. We have that propensity in ourselves that we are always right in our own eyes. I am always right in my own eyes. Ain't that right, Kelly? Amen. I'm always right. We can justify ourselves, right? That's the issue. We can self-justify anything, right? We are masters at self-justification and self-righteousness. The problem is that while we will make excuses to justify ourselves, our own actions, our own behaviors, we will at the same time stand in judgment over others without any place or any allowance for mercy, compassion, or grace. Then, to top all of that off, we will brag before God and others of how good we are. That's what the problem is in this text. That's what's going on with some of these Pharisees. So notice, that's the problem. Notice, second, the parable. So Jesus tells a story. He's a masterful storyteller. He tells a parable to address this problem to some of those who trust in their own self-righteousness and look with contempt on others. So let's take a moment and contrast. Look at the parable, verses 10 through 13. Then we're going to contrast the two characters in the parable. Look what it says in verses 10 through 13. He says there, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, probably pointing at the, Pharise- at the, at the tax collector, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So let's contrast these two characters. I want you to notice first that they, have, they held vastly different uh, positions in society. These two characters that Jesus chose come from opposite ends of the spectrum in society. Now, according to Josephus' own words, he says this about Pharisees, quote, he says, The Pharisees, quote, were a body of Jews known for surpassing the others in the observance of piety and the exact interpretation of the laws. That's what Josephus says, famous Jewish historian. Now, due to their piety, the Pharisees, due to their piety and their very strict lifestyle, the Pharisees were admired and respected greatly, and they had a wide influence on the Jewish culture of the day. They were very well respected. Everybody respected them and wanted to know what they thought because they had the most influence in Jewish society and during Jesus' day. At the, at the far other end of the spectrum were the tax collectors. While the Pharisees were admired, tax collectors were despised. They were hated by most. 
They were notorious for dishonesty. They were treated as traitors by the Jews because they were imposing Roman taxes on their fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. According to the Mishnah, which is an ancient collection of rabbinical teaching, tax collectors are listed alongside of murderers and robbers. I mean, think about being in that list. We have murderers, we have robbers, and we have tax collectors. Like they are the same. Okay? They weren't allowed, because of this, to serve as judges. They weren't allowed to give testimony in court or to serve in any other civic capacity. Now, the closest modern example I could give to how tax collectors were viewed would be to say they're drug dealers or they're pimps or those who make their living by extorting and preying on the bodies of others for their own gain. That's what they would do. At this point in the parable, here's what you have to hear as a modern reader. At this point in the parable, all of Jesus' hearers would have intuitively understood, if I stopped just in verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. All of Jesus' hearers would have intuitively understood and expected that the Pharisee is a virtuous hero. He's the hero. He's the virtuous hero, and the, and the tax collector is the villain. Jesus chose characters at the top of society. The Pharisees respected, admired, emulated, modeled after, and a tax collector. Horrible, no good, no account, outcast. They come from vastly different positions in society. But second, notice that they offer, however... Vastly different prayers. They offer vastly different prayers. While both prayers begin the same, they're addressed to God, they are incredibly different. Notice the differences first in their postures as they pray. Luke, Jesus outlines their postures as they pray. The Pharisee stands near the front by himself in the temple, most likely dressed in his flowing robes with his tassels and phylacteries in full view of everyone else who is there to pray. He stands alone so as not to be defiled even by the others who are in the temple praying. He's unafraid and unconcerned that he's approaching, that he is approaching the very presence of God who, by the way, dwelt among his people at the temple. You go to the temple because the presence of God dwells there in the Holy of Holies over the mercy seat. And Jesus says in another place in the Gospels that the Pharisees, one of the problems with the Pharisees is that they loved being seen praying in public and being greeted for their piety by those around them. He's there in the temple at the front, lifting his eyes to heaven, Unafraid, unconcerned, except he's concerned about himself and the other people in the room. Now notice, in contrast to that, the tax collector. The tax collector stands alone, but for a different reason. He's not worried about being defiled by others. He dares not draw any closer or nearer to God than he needs to. He's afraid. He barely comes into the temple Though it was common practice to pray with our eyes lifted up, this man would not do that. 
It's also common for people to pray out loud in the temple. It's a whole different ball game to list your virtues publicly out loud, isn't it? And a whole different thing to name your sins publicly in front of others. So you notice they have vastly different uh, postures as they pray, but notice also they're different. There's a very much a, there's a very much a difference in their petitions. What do they come to the temple to do? What are they coming to ask for? Notice that the Pharisee actually doesn't make a petition of God. He makes no petition. He makes no request. He asks for nothing. Why? Because he needs nothing in his own mind. There is nothing, in fact, he needs. God is actually fortunate to have such a respectable representative in the temple as opposed to the tax collector. In fact, there seems to be some sarcasm in Luke's telling of the parable. Because verse 11, look at verse 11. Verse 11 could be translated this way. He stood and prayed to himself. There's a bit of sarcasm in that, isn't it? Because if that's the case, this isn't a prayer at all. It's, a, it's simply a self-congratulating victory lap at the expense of the tax collector. Ultimately, you'll see that the Pharisee here has an eye problem. Notice, look in your text. He uses in his prayer to God, I, five times. Five times, God, I thank you, I am not like this. I fast, I tithe, I do what is expected of me. I, 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 I. You see, he mentions himself in his short prayer, but he doesn't make a single petition. One commentator says about this, quote, He glances at God, he looks up. He glances at God, but he's only thinking of himself. It's not really a prayer, is it? He glances at God, but thinks only of himself. Now let me just say here, just so I'm fair, let me just say here that it can be right and good, it can be right and good to thank God for his provision in your life, for his care over your soul, for his protection from sin and evil. We should desire, all of us should desire for God to work in our lives. As, the, as Jesus' model prayer says, we should pray that God would deliver us from evil. That God would lead us not into temptation. But that's not what's happening here. The Pharisee is praying as though he himself, apart from God's grace, has accomplished these things. God, I thank you that I myself have made myself righteous. That I myself have kept myself from being an extortioner and an adulterer, and I'm not like those people. God, I'm good to go. The Pharisee's praying as though he himself, apart from God's grace, has done these things. He's basically saying, God, look at me. Look how well I've done compared to these others. Look at me. I'm not looking at God. God, look at me. On the other hand, what you have from the tax collector is a simple plea for mercy. Not a lot of theology in his prayer, is it? Not a lot of self-congratulating. No, it's a very simple plea for mercy. He quotes Psalm 51, just like the prodigal son did in returning to his father. He beats his breast. It's a sign of contrition and repentance. And he literally calls himself the sinner. If your translation says a sinner then it's wrong. The definite article is there. He says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. 
Sounds very much like Paul, doesn't it? When Paul, in his letter to Timothy, calls himself the chief of sinners. God, I'm not just a sinner among many sinners. I am the chief. I am the one who is guilty. I am the one who has broken your law. See, here's the point. He, the tax collector knows exactly who he is. He knows exactly what he's done. And he knows exactly why he's in the temple. He's here to receive mercy and grace and forgiveness. He's here to plea for God's compassion. He's not here to be seen by others. He's here only to be seen by God. The word for be merciful, when he says, be merciful to me a sinner, that word carries the idea of, God, let your wrath be turned aside and my sin be atoned for. In some sense, the reason I'm doing this parable right after the parable of the prodigal son, because in some sense, this is the, this parable being acted out again. In the parable of the prodigal son, you have this repentant younger brother who knows exactly what he's done, and he says, Oh, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against earth. Be merciful. And you have the older brother standing on the outside going, I can't believe he's here, and I can't believe you're even listening to him. It's the same picture right here, right? You have the younger brother offering a simple prayer of repentance as the older brother stands apart, looking on him in prideful disdain. That's the parable. You have two people in the same place, two different postures, two different prayers, and that leads third to the proclamation. Notice you have a proclamation. Look at verse 14. Jesus says here, he says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now what is unusual about this parable, as we've studied several parables now so far, what's unusual about this parable is that Jesus gives his own proclamation of it. Jesus tells us exactly how we are to understand it. He doesn't give us any wiggle room. This isn't really open to much interpretation. You don't get to allegorize this parable or make things mean things that aren't in the text. Jesus tells you exactly what to expect here. And it's not what anyone else would have thought. Jesus says only one of these two went home justified. Now, you need to circle that word and draw a line back up to verse 9 to the word righteous. Jesus tells this parable to some who thought themselves righteous. It's the word justified. And Jesus said only one of these two guys went home righteous. Only one of them went home righteous. And this proclamation, if you were in Jesus' audience, would have shocked you. This would not have been your expectation. If you were a first century Jew, up on all the happenings of your culture, and you knew what was going on around you, when Jesus said this, you would have been like, full stop, what are you talking about? What are you talking about, Jesus? Surely it must be the morally upright and religiously zealous Pharisee. He obeys more zealously than all others. He fasts twice a week. When the law says you only have to fast one day a year. This man fasts 104 days a year, not just one. Surely he's righteous. He doesn't just tithe on what he earns. 
He also tithes on everything that he has. What the Pharisee is saying is true. When he says these things in his prayer, he's speaking the truth. It can't be Jesus, this immoral, untrustworthy, low-life traitor to Rome tax collector. How can this be Jesus? How can this be? It's the same thing when the disciples were surprised when Jesus says that a rich man can't get to heaven because he's rich. Jesus says, it's, I tell you the truth, it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. And the disciple goes, well then who can be saved? Isn't their riches a sign of God's blessing? Surely if anybody's getting to heaven, it's those that God has already blessed materially in this world. They're dumbfounded. It can't be this tax collector. Well, let me give you two reasons why this is the case. Two reasons. Number one, these two characters, the reason one goes home justified is because these two people have different understandings of God. They have different understandings of God. The Pharisee has forgotten why the temple even exists. Remember, they're in the temple praying. He, he's forgotten why the temple exists in the first place. There are animals being sacrificed daily in the temple in the place of who? Sinners. In the place of sinners. Every time he comes into the temple, he should have been reminded that these animals are being offered by faith and this animal is standing in my place because I am not righteous. I deserve to be in the place of the animal. And instead, the animal is my substitute and is the one punished instead of me. That's why Paul argues in Romans 3, by the way, that all are guilty under the law. What does Romans 3 say? There is none righteous, no, not one. Not a single person is righteous. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is why Jesus came. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You see, the Pharisee had a contractual relationship with God. And I need you to pay attention here because some of you in this room might have this same relationship. You have a contractual understanding of your relationship with God. What do I mean by that? I mean contractual, meaning it's based on what you do or you don't do, as opposed to covenantal, which is based only on what God can do. A contract and a covenant are not the same thing. You see, the Pharisee thinks that if he does what is good and righteous, then God has to accept him. After all, he's fulfilled his end of the contract. But he's forgotten the core of the covenant God made with Abraham 400 years before the law was even given, where it says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. How did Abraham receive righteousness? How was Abraham made righteous? Was it because he kept a contract? No, he believed God, he fell on God's mercy, and he received, he was counted, credited as righteous. Abraham didn't earn God's favor, it was given to him by grace through faith. So God's grace is not a contractual agreement. We all have contracts, we hate them with, the, with our cell phone company, and we hate them with we hate them with our, our cable company because what will happen is after, at the end of that contract, what do they do? They change the terms. 
then they jack your price up three times. But what that contract does is when you call them on the phone, you say, hey, we contracted this for $100 a month. That's what the contract says. You have to abide by the contract. And, the, and then they'll call you if you don't pay your bill. And they say, we have a contract. I gave you goods and services. You owe me $100. You see, the contract puts the thumb on both parties where you can have say in what happens. And that's what the Pharisee understood. But there's the issue. Contracts are used to leverage both parties to do what they said. And if God is on a contract, then you can manipulate him and you can control him and you can force him to do things that he would not otherwise do. You can say things like, look God, I'm doing the good stuff you told me to do. Now you keep your end of the deal. Give me money, give me happiness, give me good health. Certainly don't send cancer to my home. We have a contract, God. We have a contract. That's not how the tax collector understands God. The tax collector has a covenant understanding of God. He knows that his only hope, his only hope of being made right before a holy and just God is to fall on his mercy, to fall on grace. There's nothing good in him. So he comes to offer his sacrifices and prayers by faith, knowing that only God can save him and forgive him. He certainly doesn't come to look down on others because he knows he's no better. He has a humble, covenant understanding of his relationship with God. But second, these two also have a vastly different standing before God. Notice that they have a different understanding of God, but they also have a different standing before God. Only one went home justified. Only one was declared righteous. And righteous is one of the most important terms in the entire New Testament. Paul says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified, declared righteous, made righteous by faith, we have peace with God. This tax collector, even though his conscience convicts him, and he has no peace in himself, he has no accounting, he has no standing in society before this Pharisee, even though none of those things are true, he goes home at peace with God, even if he doesn't feel it, even if he doesn't think it. He goes home with a righteous standing before God. He is not condemned. He is justified. And Jesus says at the same time, this self-righteous, self-congratulating Pharisee who has kept the law scrupulously and meticulously goes home not under justification but under condemnation. His sins are not forgiven. These two have incredibly different social standings. One is respected, one is despised. But before God, they have two very different standings as well. The one we don't expect is welcomed and received by grace, and the other stands condemned. It's not what anyone would have expected. Now, what can we learn from this? Let me give you some gospel principles here, and then we'll close. What can you learn from this parable? Here is the first one, and this is the gospel hope that we have. Number one, anyone, this is, this, is what God, this is what Jesus is pressing home for his kingdom. The kingdom expectation, where everybody else's expectations are wrong, they want a pure, uh, a pure kingdom with no sinners whatsoever, let's root them all out. Jesus says, no, 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 here's how my kingdom will be established. Anyone who humbly repents and comes to Jesus by faith will be welcomed, accepted, and justified. Anybody. 
anybody. This parable brings hope to those of us who know that we are no better than this tax collector. I'm no better. I've robbed, I've stolen, I've extorted, I've squandered grace, I have cheated. I am no better. I have no hope of being righteous in and of myself. This parable also brings a warning to the self-righteous. Jesus tells this parable to those who trust in their own righteousness. Listen, before God, your righteousness is as filthy rags. You have nothing to bring to salvation except the sin from which you need to be saved. If you are clinging to any goodness or any self-righteousness in yourself, you need to repent. Listen, I want to tell you this. Our world runs on self-righteousness. This parable is just as applicable today as it was 2,000 years ago. Our world runs on self-righteousness. It's the thought that I'm better than you because of fill in the blank. Whether that be my education, my abilities, my intellect, my looks, my race, my politics, my Instagram followers. I am better than you because... And it's that thought that allows you to look down on others with contempt and sit over them in judgment while you yourself think that God is lucky to have you. It is anti-gospel. The gospel kills self-righteousness. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, as the hymn says. Second truth. Second truth. Let me, just, let me finish my last thought, though. We enter God's kingdom not by self-righteousness, but by Christ's righteousness. All we bring is repentance. Repentance. Number two, how we understand the nature of our relationship with God is directly connected to how we view others. Notice what Jesus is saying here. That how you, how you understand the nature of your relationship with God, does God accept you by contract or by covenant? How you view the nature of your relationship with God is directly connected to how you view other people. If you have a contract relationship with God, then you have every right to look down on others. Every right to have contempt because you're better at keeping the covenant, better at keeping the contract than them. But if you have a covenant understanding, then oh man, does that change the way you view other people? Does that drill down in you compassion and mercy? Listen, if you believe that you have a contract relationship with God, you will necessarily act it out towards others. And by the way, this is critical in our church's gospel witness to our community. There are folks in our church and in our community, hear me, there are folks in our church and in our community that still bear the scars and wounds of their earlier life decisions. They're walking around with the scars of poor decision-making in their past. And are you going to make them live that out day by day? Those that are like this Pharisee and ultimately trust in their own righteousness will look down on them and write them off as throwaways. Well, they've just wrecked it too bad. Not Jesus. Not grace. Those that have been forgiven much, love much, and our church should be filled with people like this tax collector. They still have scars, they still have wounds, and they go, yeah, that was a previous life, but man, isn't Jesus good? Listen, Jesus gives a warning in Revelation chapter 3 to the church at Laodicea that thinks they're, 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 they've moved into self-righteousness, and listen to what Jesus says to them. He says, 
to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. He says this, I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. I would that you were either hot or cold. Because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I'll spit you out. For you say, listen to the self-righteous. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus says, repent. You think you're righteous and you're not. All you have is God's grace. And then finally, how we understand the nature of our relationship with God shows up in how you pray. That's one of the leading lessons of this parable. These two men understood their, their relationship with God completely differently and what did it, how did it show up in, this, in the parable and how they prayed. If you understand the gospel, that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then self-righteousness and pride will die in you and it will show up in the way you pray before God. Your prayers will not be self-congratulating pats on the back for how God, how lucky God is to have you. No, your prayers will be filled with worship and with praise and with grace and with mercy towards others. Oh God, be gracious to them as you've been gracious to me. That is what will show up if you understand the nature of God's, of God's relationship based on the gospel and not self-righteousness. Let me pray for us, and then we'll have a brief time of invitation. Father, we just ask today that you would draw near to us. And Father, may we, Lord, not write ourselves off if we're the tax collector. And Father, even here, not write ourselves off if we're the Pharisee. But Father, may we come in repentance before you, receiving righteousness that only comes by faith in Christ. Father, bring us conviction and clarity. Lord Jesus, we ask this in Christ's name.